Petersfield's Shine Radio. This is Talking Books, presented by Susie Wilde and Tim O'Kelly. Hello, I'm Susie Wilde and you're listening to Talking Books, where we lay out our stall of new books and polish up an old favourite. And I'm Tim O'Kelly of One Tree Books and our guest this month is Martin Munkester. And Tim, you're going to meet Sir Vince Cable too before this episode goes out. So here's a question for you. What do Sir Vince and Martin have in common? Well, they're both, they're both wordsmiths, I can say that much, and they're both tall, elegant, older gentlemen. Very nicely put, but <laughs> I was thinking of something else, because um, we're lucky enough to have Martin here already. I was thinking, didn't you used to compare com- Come Dancing? Yes. Well, well, there you are, you see. So, dancing. Dancing. Yeah. There you go. But let's start, as usual, with what you've been reading, Susie. OK, well, I've actually managed to read quite a few, because two of them are young adult books, which are always shorter, as you know. Um but I've got so many that I've decided to just mostly talk about the ones that I've most enjoyed and one health warning, which I'll speak about later. So the first book I want to talk about is Ghost Bird by Lisa Fuller. Lisa Fuller is what we would call Aboriginal. And now um, I think it isn't native Australian, but it was a, you know, a first a first person in Australia. First nation status. First nation status. Oh, well done, Tim. Thank goodness. I should have checked that before I came. And it is a wonderful book. I really recommend it because it's, you really feel like you're having a taste of something completely other that's um, like almost a true myth. Like in my books, I use actual Viking myths, so they're not entirely made up. And I think it gives it a good grounding. But I particularly want to mention Aftershocks by Anne Fine, who is, of course, an excellent author. Mm. Um, that's if you don't know, she wrote Mrs. Doubtfire and um, and other great books. Um, she's also written she's written adult adult books as well as as as, as um, young adult books. Aftershocks was inspired by hearing about ghosts in the awful tsunami in Japan. Um, loads of taxi drivers, in particular, talked about giving rise to people in that area where the tsunami came. And when they would actually get there, they'd just find puddles in the back of the taxi. And it happens over and over and over. And one young man actually said, I'm dead, aren't I? We got there. And this had a profound effect on her. It's a brilliant interview. Um, And of course, it doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. It's that creative juice that it just got her going so that's that's a really wonderful it isn't about the Japanese ghost it's actually about grief um, and I think that's really unexplored particularly for young teenagers so that's really good and then quickly Islands of Abandonment by Cal Flynn I think most people will have heard it if, if you watched the program about anthrax um, that was on the BBC she's on that she's giving oh, right. hope basically I think she won the Bailey Gifford she was certainly shortlisted I think she won it I see you've got it here on the front desk I found it profoundly optimistic because she's specifically gone to places that have been devastated variously and the anthrax thing was one example but how nature just so quickly goes its own way. So that was wonderful. Just on the anthrax thing, of course, um, have you seen The Power of the Dog, the film? I haven't seen okay, it. Well, I... That's part of the story. Anyway, oh, is anyway, it? Okay. I won't, I won't say any more. Cause I won't, oh, as, as, I've been pushed off it. I want to see it on the big screen. I think yes. it's a big screen film. 
Um, I also read The Sanatorium by Sarah Pierce, which was okay. It's again, I think in a way she's a victim of hype because I read it expecting something marvellous. And if I had just discovered it, I probably would have read it and said, yeah, it's quite good. Yeah, well, I mean, I read it because, I again, all the, all the hype. And uh, I have to say, I, I found it um, very slow to start. Um, I think it was about 150 pages before I really felt I was, was starting to whiz through the pages. And, and that's fine. If, if it's, I think if it's really well written really, and really interesting, it doesn't matter if it's slow to start. That's, that's OK. But with a thriller, I think it needs to get, grab you a bit, a bit faster and a bit sooner. Mm-hmm. I also am a bit fed up with these, sort of the, not quite the unreliable narrator, but it's, it's the same as the, she, the, our lead character is, is um, struggling with, with mental health and she's constantly putting herself down. And, and it's just, mm-hmm. I find it a bit relentlessly negative. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, having said all that, once it, once she gets going, uh, it, it's a it's a good it's a good interesting imaginative um, thriller. So. I didn't stop reading it, and yeah. you know, and I do. I don't give people much yeah, leeway. Yeah. But yeah. if if you're somebody who gets tired of um, women backing into dark rooms and not switching a light on, it will be irritating. Yeah, I, mean, I wanted to say a couple of times. Don't go on yes. your own. Go yes. with him or yes. her. But, you know, but of course... Of and course, she would know better. You, right, anyway, enough so. of her. So my health warning is going to be Unsettled Ground by Claire Fuller, who actually won the Costa, wasn't it, this year? Oh, yeah, so, won yes. the Costa. It is a brilliant book. Um, and because of its sheer brilliance, it is possibly the most depressing book I've either ever read or certainly in my current mood. So I would just pass it on to you that if you're not in a particularly good place because of current circumstance, maybe give it a miss till the world has settled again because it is well worth reading. If you do start it, I have to say it's not quite as dreadful as I thought it was going to be at the beginning. Right, um, but really, it, it, it really is a tough, tough okay. old read. Uh, I was planning on reading that quite soon, but maybe, uh, maybe I'll... I'll well, no, I, th- I think I would like to read it. I'd like to read it. Actually. I think, reader, I think, um, Tim, you'll be OK because you read enough. But our entire book group struggled. Struggled with it, OK. Because, be, not because no, she's, it's she's difficult. She's a local writer. I think she lives in Winchester, isn't she? Yes, I think, yeah, I think so she's, she's wonderful. Yeah, good. I peeped at your list, I can see, and I've also read the first one in your list. So Which is on. Snow by John Banville. Um, uh, John Banville, you may know from uh, his Booker Prize winning Book of Evidence or um, various other of his books, which are, which are always incredibly uh, well reviewed. And he's the Irish Times literary editor. And they can be a bit, they can be quite literary and tricky, his books. Basically, it starts off as a, as a typical um, Agatha Christie style book. It's set in 1958 in rural Ireland in a country house where there's been a murder. And the snow has come down, and so getting in and out of this house and and is di- is very difficult. So it's assumed that the murder, the murderer, is connected with the house. So that's where we start from, and that's the. So you think, oh, this is a traditional, you know, who done it type book. But of course, it's anything but that because this is about all sorts of things. It's particularly about Ireland in that time period. It's about the old Anglican or Church of Ireland ascendancy and the 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 catholic hierarchy and it's lots of there's lots of politics and and a religion involved in there so i i think it's a it's a really interesting book and like all the best books it got me off down a rabbit hole i want to know more about this period so i went away and um and found a fantastic 
book, which is my second book, um, We Don't Know Ourselves by Fintan O'Toole. Now, this is a, is a history of, of the island of his lifetime. He was born in the 1958, the time of this, the, the book comes into being, Snow. And uh, he tells the story of modern Ireland, and it is from a very personal perspective. And he's a journalist. He's a he's more than a journalist. He's a sort of cultural historian, um, a looker at, 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 at society, I suppose you could say. He's written quite a few books. And this is, um, well, it, it's, it's really gripping, actually, because you write so well. Yeah. And um, so I went all the way down there. But you, let me before, stop myself now <laughs> and tell me what you thought of Snow. I absolutely adored it. And the reason I read it was because it was one of his books that he goes into when he does that sort of detective thing that used to be written under a pseudonym. That's right, yes. Um, and now he's sort of come out as John Banville. Yes. Um, and I thought I could probably cope with this. Well, more than cope, I think it's a wonderful sort of crossbred between his two styles because his description of snow itself and a snowy landscape is peerless. I definitely felt cold reading I it. Really I really did feel cold. <laughs> Chilling my bones. I know. And I, and I don't actually remember 1958, but I kind of remember 1963 and so on, which actually wasn't very dissimilar, honestly. Uh, no, I, I loved it. Which is, of course, the uh, frostquake about the winter of, of 1962-3. That, that oh, I should cold read time. it. Yeah, it's, it's um, a picture of Milkman on the front delivering, delivering oh. milk through the snow. Um, but it was, uh, yeah, phenomenally cold It was. Time. We lost our boat. My dad uh, converted a lifeboat to a cabin cruiser. It was, it was like eight years doing that. And in oh, that Lord. winter, she broke the chain of her mooring in Langston Harbour and was never seen again. So the next book I was going to talk about was Small Things Like These by Claire Keegan, because once again, it's another book about Ireland, and I got a little bit obsessed this month. Um, but it's a very, very short, very, very beautiful um, novella, really. It only took you a couple of hours to read it. Uh, it's set in the 80s in Ireland, which is, I suppose, the time... The 80s in Ireland were kind of like, I suppose, I don't know, maybe the 60s in England. They were about 20 years behind. Um, when things were gradually opening up, but still hadn't opened up to any any great degree, it's about I can't really tell what it's about. It's 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 a very simple as I say, simple story uh, about a coal merchant uh, at one Christmas. It's a kind of Christmas story, oh. but it is it is absolutely beautiful, and um, I think it's it's I think she's a really wonderful writer, Claire, Claire Keegan. So that's my that's those are my books really. For Excellent. This month. I'm definitely going to try. The Fintan O'Toole and the Claire Keegan. That sounds wonderful. So, Tim, um, it's really exciting to have Martin here. I won't tell you how long ago I remember you, clearly, <laughs> Martin, um, but I do. So I've been around a long time. <laughs> you do. <laughs> feels it. Um so I bet everybody here knows that you're a resident of Sheet. I'm next door to you. Um, I'm in Inman's Lane, so not too far uh, away. I'm steep you're rather steep than Sheet. You're steep rather than Sheet. I yeah. was copying okay. from the Peacefield Post. Oh, really? Um, probably <laughs> best known for his television work for both ITV and BBC in their formative years. He has also spent time at Sea 
and read the shipping forecast. And that's the voice I loved. He <laughs> says he has been involved in accidents and mishaps that could have been fatal, including one in Surbiton. Well, of course. What else in Surbiton? Yeah, well... Well, we start off on a, on a, on a positive note rather than, rather than okay. mishaps. Right, um, OK. First of all, Martin, what, what persuaded you to write your life story in the first place? It's a very good question. What, had, what actually happened was I'd lost my partner. And she was very sad, you know, had cancer and gradually, gradually disappeared into, you know, and, and it was very, very sad and very difficult. And I found it very hard to deal with the grief afterwards, actually, to be quite frank. And I honestly thought that I must do something. I must do something active. And this, I found, was a wonderful way of releasing, if you like, the grief, which had got quite stuck in one, you know. When you lose, I'd lost my wife, I'd lost my home, I'd lost my son, and lost my wife, I lost my home, I lost my son. And then, uh, believe it or not, after all that, I then lost darling Sarah, my partner, who I'd been with for at least a dozen years. We had a wonderful time together. And so I was in a state of grief, quite deep grief, for various reasons that I've just explained. Which we don't talk about enough, I think. I think that's probably true. We're a bit afraid, a bit afraid of it, a bit, a bit of frightened of it, you know. And in fact, um, I just thought, well, now I must do something to try and moving it somewhere else so that it was. Um, it, it dealt with the grief to a very good degree and it took me an, a whole year to write write the book actually um, but funnily enough it, it took very much longer to get it into fruition because there were many there were many proofs from the publisher I was very lucky I only tried two publishers the first one threw me straight out but the second one um uh, this was people called Austin Macaulay, and they took me on board, and I had a very, very good piece of luck. And my manuscript landed on the desk of a senior editor at at Macaulay's, and he knew me, he knew the name, he knew my work on telly, he knew my work on radio, and to say that I was well known to him, and he immediately was interested in my story and thought that it was such a good story that uh, he'd put it forward for publishing, which he did. And, uh, of course, there's a long haul, especially with Tim being patient here. Well, 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 we got it all done gradually because there were a lot of proofs, and, and so often the proofs came back with, you know, Something wrong somewhere. What would, you, what would you say were the, the, the what's the highlight? What was the highlight of your your life that you? Um, because there are various things that you in in the book that you clearly love and enjoy. What, I mean, I don't know whether it was was your time in the navy or it was time at the South today or time at uh, doing broadcasting. Or what what really was the thing that you you enjoyed most? Well, that's a very good question as well because uh, for me, South today was a kind of highlight in my career. I was very happy there and loved it all. And it was very, very busy, uh, un- under pressure all the time, but 
funnily enough, what I liked was the fact that I was doing something I loved doing. It almost wasn't work. It was, of course, work. It was jolly hard work. But at the same time, I was doing exactly what I wanted to do. And I do believe that if you live your passion, then you're likely to be successful. Because people who can't live their passion, I mean, they're on the 640 train from Hazelmere every morning, you know, and read the, get stuck behind the times. And, and one way or another, you know, they, they've, for me, they've got boring sort of lives. Obviously not for them, because, you know, they go to the city and they do all sorts of extraordinary things like making a very great deal of money. But uh, nevertheless, for me, I, I couldn't bear a sort of nine to five. I was tried at it once when I was asked by the, um, the BBC to train reporters and, uh, and newsreaders, which I did, but I found that very, very difficult because I'm not a trainer like that at all, really. And also I found it very difficult because the porters, the reporters, newsreaders, they just didn't seem to get what I was trying to get across to them about expression and, you know, using, using our words really well. And the enunciation had to be good. When I first joined, it was the old home service. I mean, that's ages ago. That's antique now. But I joined in the 50s when uh, we were still reading, reading a news bulletin like they were read during the wartime. Well, you were just dressed up in a... In a uh, DJ. Dinner jacket with a, with, a, with a bow tie and a... Uh, not, not quite, you didn't quite do that, did you? When you were not, well, that's I did that... Were, that's what they were doing when you, were, when you were growing up, I'm sure. I did that on television, funnily enough, to start with. But, no, I mean, yes, they did. I believe they... The, in the old days of, of the BBC's nine o'clock news, I believe people like Stuart Hibbert, had, they did indeed wear a, a black tie. <laughs> and yes. of course you couldn't see that, but nevertheless, they, the BBC reckoned that it gave it a sort of gravitas. It gave it a sense of importance, if you like, yeah. of what they're actually reading. And that can come through the, on the voice, you see. It can all come in the voice. It if must it, drive you mad now, because I've got some complete horrors. They always stress the preposition instead of the important oh, word in a sentence. how right now. you are. Everything, to, You're for, so, from, yes. under, you know. And it, the, the, oh, it's awful. The, the one I cannot bear is the, the ones uh, after the Parliament a half hour. You know, but half past ten, half past eleven till twelve. Honestly, and that was yes. today in Parliament. <laughs> and that was today in Parliament. Those are not the words that matter. What matters <laughs> is today in Parliament. That's the title. If you if there was somebody listening to this who's who's you know, perhaps just leaving university or something and was interested in broadcasting, what advice would you give them? My advice would be enunciate well understand what you're reading or saying, understand it yourself and give it expression and a sense of it mattering. So you're not just rushing things through. Everything today is done at such a speed. Mm. When I first started on the, the old home service, we had to enunciate with very great care every word. I mean, I can remember Frank Phillips, for instance, 
he was reading about a, a home secretary. He would say, the home secretary. So he'd say the whole word, you see. Not anymore. Secretary. 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 Mm-hmm. So um, just to, to change tack a little bit, you, you, so you, you grew up in the, in the shadow of, of um, your father, the, the, of a cre- great creative, an artist. Yes. And do you think that, do you think that affected how your, how, you, how your career panned out, how your life panned out? Oh, undoubtedly. Because, I mean, he was tremendously helpful to me uh, because I wanted to follow his expertise, which was unbelievable. I mean, he was an incredible artist. And how the heck he puts, you know, the detail down onto watercolour and and oil is quite extraordinary what he managed to do. Some of it's in the book, by the way. Yes, there's um, quite a few pictures. Because I, yeah. uh, I wanted people to see what his expertise was like. I didn't really want to be an artist because I knew I was nowhere near like my father. And I, it would be sort of trying, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't possibly compete. Not that I'd want to compete, but I, I, just not, I just didn't have the passion, you see. My father had passion his passion was, was painting. He once said to me, you know, I do believe that painting is even more important to me than the family. Mm-hmm. Now, that was quite something. And, of course, he just couldn't help himself. He started when he was about 11, I suppose. He never went to college. He never went to, you know, university. He never went to find out anything. He could just do it, and his details, sense of details, quite extraordinary. If he, if he drew a tree, you got every branch, every twig, every leaf. Quite extraordinary how he managed to do that. Yes. So you, I mean, you're quite a countryman yourself, aren't you? You enjoy the, you enjoy the, uh, the outdoors. You're a oh yes, I'm very keen enough, fisherman. My, yeah, I'm very sailor. much an outdoor person, really. But you, but in the book again, you talk about your time in the navy. Obviously, that obviously had quite an impact on you. That. Your national service. Oh, yes. National service certainly did. The Navy time, time in the Navy, was um, extraordinary. That made a huge difference to my life because it was all discipline and I was determined. I, you see, I'm, I'm hopeless at maths, hopeless at anything to do with star sights and all that stuff. I had no good at that at, at all. And so I decided that I, got, I had to be the smartest man on parade. I was a signalman to start with, which I enjoyed, actually, in many ways, because it's communication, and I've always been interested in communication. And so, you know, hoisting flags and learning morse and learning semaphore and all that, in absolute detail, um, was um, quite an achievement, as a matter of fact, because in the end... Uh, it became second nature. I mean, I could just read read a flashing light just like that, immediately. Or um, the waving flags, you know, semaphore flags. Each each um, placing of the flag, you know, gave you a, a letter. So I was talking about your the country, but Scotland is a, has a special place for you, isn't it? In your in your oh, heart. Oh yes, very special. We went to the, uh, an island off the west coast, called Jura, which is um, part of the Inner Hebrides. And it's a wonderful place. It was wild and so quiet. 
We went to Isla first, then across the little stretch of sea to Jura. Because we, 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 we were staying on an old lighthouse station. We well, had great fun. We loved, we loved Scotland. Fantastic. Well, um, thank you very much for coming in today, Martin. It's been really interesting to hear about, hear about the book. Pleasure. Um, the Voice of the Face is published by Austin Macaulay, and it's available from all good bookshops. Um, so thank you again, Martin, and um, best of luck with the book. Thank you very much for having me, as I say. So, Martin, before you go, as I remember you so well reading the shipping forecast, I wonder, would you do me a huge favour and read a poem by Seamus Heaney that's one of my favourites called The Shipping Forecast? Certainly, a pleasure. Dogger, Rockall, Malin, Irish Sea. Green, swift upsurges, North Atlantic flux conjured by that strong gale-warning voice, collapse into a sibilant penumbra. Midnight and close down. Sirens of the tundra, of eel road, seal road, keel road, whale road, raise their wind-compounded keen behind the bays and drive the trawlers to the lee of Wicklow, Etoile, Le Guillemot, La Belle Hélène, Nurse their bright names this morning in the bay, that toiled like mortar. It was marvellous, and actually, I said out loud, a haven. The word deepening, clearing like the sky. Elsewhere, on Minchies, Cromarty, the Pharaohs. It's a joy Thank to you for hear having you. Me. Well, how kind. Well, if you've been inspired yourself by listening to Martin Munkester and his memoirs um, and would like to know where to start writing a memoir of your own or any fiction or poetry, I'm running a workshop on Monday the 28th of March at Westmark Barnes, just on the 272, just outside Sheet, just past Sheet Common. It's from 7 to 9 p.m. There's going to be wine and I'm going to donate my proceeds to SOS Children's Villages. Um, It's the home of Herbert Headley, Um, so we're going to be doing it amongst really inspiring and beautifully made things. So if you don't know that already, come and see. There's only 10 places because I want to be able to do it properly. So um, find details on Eventbrite, which I'll put on the Shine Radio website or my own website, susiewild.co.uk, and I'll put a poster up in One Tree Books. Great. That sounds very interesting, Susie. Um, So the next stage we're going to look at is what's coming up. So excite me, Tim. What what have we got to look forward to? Well, there's a book I really enjoyed called This Is The Night They Come For You by Robert Goddard. Now, you probably know know Robert Goddard from his his thriller writing. He's been doing... He's been a very successful thriller writer over the last probably 30 years. Um, He used to be based in Winchester, so he has actually... He's been into the shop before, but he's a a, uh, terrific... Um, mystery writer, I suppose, rather than thriller. And this one is set in partly in Paris and partly in, in Algeria. And he digs really deeply into the fascinating story of the French in Algeria and the enduring presence of le pouvoir, um, which is the kind of the, the force in, in um, 
in Algeria, which has been there throughout its, its turbulent modern history. What, what, um, so explain, I don't know pouvoir. Well, le pouvoir, is, 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 it means, I think it means the power. Algeria has gone through lots of different phases in the last 50 years, 70 years, from being a French colony, through a great war of independence, through uh, an establishment of a nationalist group being taken over by an by a, a, um, Islamic fundamentalist group, then now back to a kind of, some kind of stasis. All throughout that time, the, the actual power in Algeria has been based around around oil and gas, which is kind of, uh, uh, and it still is. But the, the shadowy owners of that oil and gas haven't really changed over that time. They still con- almost control what goes on. So it's, uh, so it, it, the book is a, is a, is a, um, a sort of police uh, story about you know missing people and money and and killings and things right. and uh, but it, in the background you've got all this stuff about Algeria's modern history which I found really interesting it's basically it's a it's a it's a good page turner that also tells you a lot about about Algerian history wonderful so so that's um this is the night they come for you by Rob, Robert Goddard um, just mention a few other books just coming out in paperback at the moment uh, Charles Cummings second book in his uh, Box 88 series is out called Judas 62. Lots of numbers there. I'm not sure why that should be. Um, uh, The the book that we we talked about previously, which um, we both really enjoyed, Early Morning Riser by Catherine Heine. It's coming out in paperback at the end of the month. Swarm Rising by Tim Peake, which is a a, a kind of middle grade children's book. I say middle grade because I never quite like to give precise yeah. ages on how how who should be reading what book but it's it's a younger than a young adult but it's it's somebody who's reasonably competent at reading would like this book it's a sort of uh, superhero um if you like alex Ryder or or the cherub series you, you'd probably enjoy so it's fiction rising. yes right okay um <laughs> so, about bees no well tim tim <laughs> yes it could be tim peak of course is the is the uh, astronaut mm. and he's done it um uh He's written this book, and it's you know it's done really well. So, lastly, I wanted to talk about a non-fiction book, um, "Finding the Mother Tree," by Professor Suzanne Simard. Um, this is sort of understanding the complexity of the natural world. It's about trees, but it's it's trying to prove that the forest is more than just a bunch of trees. Basically, it, it, that it's an, an organism in itself. Um, the fungi that that link the trees together, and uh, she's made this her life's work, and it it is um, it's a very interesting, very interesting book. Um, I have read about that yeah. somewhere. It sounds brilliant. Yeah, no, I think it's uh, she she relates that the, the 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 sort of wisdom and intelligence of the forest to to, to more bit wider sociological cons, you know interests. So I think it's um, it's uh, a really interesting book. There's a good picks there, Tim, because it's very varied. It is. Well done. Well, now it's time for my backlisted book. And, Tim, I'm going to celebrate the fact that Jack Reacher is 25. But what do we mean, Jack Reacher is 25? 25 years since his first... 25 years since... He might be a bit older than that these (laughs) days. I think he might be a bit. Um, Did you see the latest series? I did. I watched it. What did you think? Uh, I enjoyed it. I mean, it's... it's, it's, um, It's like the book, actually. It's very like his writing, I think. Uh, So, which means they've done it very well. I much prefer it to the film. And I think books, anyway, are better as a series than a sort of one-shot film well partly because the, the film had um um little, little tom cruise <laughs> tom cruise uh and jack reacher is meant to be 
sort of six foot yeah. eight or something and and as wide as a in a built like a like a brick house uh and uh it just didn't come off really as, as, as tom cruise but but um the guy who plays him is a kind of absolutely Adam know, something. I love the fact huge. that I, you know, as evidenced by the fact I can't remember his name, which is shameful. But I like the fact it's an actor I didn't previously know yeah. because he's therefore completely reacher. But I'm going to say that um, also at UEA, which has the University of East Anglia, has a really really good creative writing course there. And on the 31st of March, there's a whole day symposium set to celebrate the official opening of the archive of Lee Child's papers there, which I think, again, another triumph for my hero, Lee Child. I think it's a typical move on his part to give the archive to Britain um, and not somewhere in the States, which you might expect because of Reacher himself. But I'm going to say that um, it's a big shout out as well, as usual, for the Peaceville Bookshop for um, these backlisted books because I love just mooching and I came across this one nothing to lose which is the one I'm reading there but I also came across 61 hours also a Jack Reacher which I hadn't heard of before and it's actually turned out to be my favorite but actually this one I'm not going to read from it um, because you know once you, <laughs> you say unfairly once you've read one Lee Child they, they have a very similar sort of thing and really it's so important to sort of dive into it and I would say he's a brilliant thriller writer I use him when I'm doing workshops because he begins on day one and you crack on it's forward forward in fact Reacher himself hates going back yeah that's that's one of the things one of his things isn't he he doesn't wear he doesn't wear the same clothes. Uh, what is he doesn't. He doesn't. He doesn't have any possessions. He doesn't. Never washes. He, he doesn't have. He doesn't have anything. Doesn't, never travels with anything. He always travels True. light. He has a toothbrush. But, but the thing about the thing about Lee Child is his sentences are always really short, so that um, they, you don't get a long descriptions of anything. You get the coffee came. It was hot. He drank it. He does mix it up a bit. (laughs) But I do but I know what you mean. No word is wasted. And I also think he's brilliant because and and so popular, you know, one book is sold every sixty seconds somewhere in the world. And I think that's because people who find reading difficult love him because of the simple sentence structure, but also more sophisticated readers like you and me, Tim, also love him because he really puts you in the place. You can completely imagine it. Um, so this is the blurb just on the back. Two small towns in Colorado, hope and despair. Between them, 12 miles of empty road. All Reacher wants is a cup of coffee, but the redneck cops in despair run him out of town, arousing his bloody-minded curiosity. What secret lies in this small company town, dwarfed by a recycling plant with a military outpost? Ex-military policeman Reacher pulls at a small loose thread and unravels conspiracies that expose some shocking truths and what I love about this is and I will give nothing away no spoiler but that one of the most shocking truths that comes to light is nothing to do with the sort of the usual crime or anything else it's actually a very personal on a personal level and I found that rather wonderful excellent It's very good to be able to talk to you today, Sir Vince. Thank you. Um, I was wondering if you'd be able to tell me a little bit about your book, Money and Power. 
Yes, um, I, as you know, I retired from Parliament two, three years ago. I've been writing books, several, um, and one of them, Money and Power, is a project that I'd been working on for some years. And when I was an MP, I used to use my spare time going into the library. And it's about politicians who made a really big difference to economic policy. When we think about politicians, we think about their politics. And when we think about economists, we think about the people who wrote theory and textbooks. Um, but actually, the people who did really big things on the economy were actually politicians, the people who did stuff. So, you know, Margaret Thatcher, you may or may not agree with her politics, but she had a massive effect on the way we run the economy in Britain. And indeed, many other countries copied her ideas. Or if we go back a bit into history, uh, Roosevelt in America, who... Uh, helped lift America out of the, the terrible slump it was on a far bigger scale than any slump we've experienced post-war. You know, he completely transformed America. Um, or even further back in time, Peel brought in free trade, um, or Alexander Hamilton in America, who started the whole idea of manufacturing industry as the basis for a modern state. Um, and I finish up in my book with actually with Trump, not because I agree with him or like him, but because he did something really rather important. He, he brought back nationalism into economics and putting up tariffs and actually breaking up the order that we had um, since the Second the Robert, World War. The Robert Peel, and they started off. Yes, yes. He, yes yeah. that's right. Trump turned it, turned it on its head in, in a very damaging way, but he mattered. He mattered. He was an important man. Um, so that's what it's about. It's, it's about right. politicians who changed the world uh, in, the, in the areas of economic policy. And does it take you a long time to write these books? You, you seem to be writing a lot at the moment. Yes, I, I did Money and Power um, shortly after I left Parliament. I then wrote a book called The Chinese Conundrum, which is yeah. how we should approach modern China. Um, I'm not a China expert, but I had dealings with China when I was in business before I got into government, uh, and I worked for Shell, and then as a cabinet minister. Um, so I, and I've been fascinated by this extraordinary phenomenon, this very poor country that within a very short period of time has grown to be the world's largest economy on some measures and certainly technologically very sophisticated um, and probably emerging as the dominant economic superpower in the next 20-30 years, possibly with India. Um, and of course it's transforming the world. We have a fundamentally different political system, um, but I, I think we have no alternative but to engage with them and try to work with them, difficult though it may be. So I, I did a book on China. Well, I must say, I, I found, it, found it absolutely fascinating. I've just been reading it. Mm. And uh, I thought I knew a bit about China until I read the book. And then I realised I knew a lot less, well, <laughs> a I, lot more. I read books yeah. on China and realise how little I know. <laughs> yes, yes. No, I, but I, I thought it was particularly interesting as to why China is the way it is politically mm. and its history um, and obviously, that's a you know a key part of of where we are now. I mean, how how do you think, uh, or do you think that the situation in Ukraine uh, makes a big difference to our engagement with China? Um, well, I hope it doesn't fundamentally change it for the worst. I mean, the Chinese are walking a very narrow 
tightrope. Uh, I think, you know, we in the West are utterly disgusted and outraged by what the Russians have done um, and imposing sanctions, I think rightly. Um, quite a few other countries um, are taking the view that this is none of their business. Um, they may disapprove of um, Russia attacking a sovereign country and, and feel strongly that this is a bad idea and wrong. Uh, but at the same time, they don't want to be on the side of the West, which they have other disagreements with, particularly in the United States. So China is trying to steer a middle path. India is the same. India is so far stayed neutral. Um, South Africa, um, the Arab countries largely are keeping out of this. Uh, but China matters because, of course, it's such an, an enormously important economy. And if they get dragged in, um, if Putin presses them to supply weapons, uh, which the Americans in particular regard as crossing a red line, then China gets caught up in sanctions and it then retaliates and you can get a snowball of... Um, in which what was a European war becomes a world war, not necessarily a hot war, but, but in which everybody is drawn in in some way. Yeah, and I suppose the worry is that uh, the, uh, Taiwan is a live issue with China that maybe... Well, would... Taiwan's been a live issue for China for 70 years, which, yes. of course, they, um, it's not just they consider it. I mean, we consider that there is one China, uh, but Taiwan isn't a sovereign country, but it is a... It, it has become de facto a country, not in in law and, and recognition, but it but exists as a independent entity, which is a very successful economy and a very flourishing democracy. Um, the Chinese have always made it very clear that at some point they're going to reclaim it. Um, I think it's some way off if, yeah. if they do. I mean, if you think about the problems that Putin's run into just trying to invade a next-door neighbour, um, the Chinese would have to cross a 100 miles of sea to get there with their invasion force. And the Chinese haven't been involved in wars. The last one they were involved in was in the 1970s with yeah. Vietnam, which yeah. they lost. And they yeah. got badly beaten up. So this is not a country with, um, unlike Russia, which has got this massive uh, nuclear arsenal and a very, very big army. Uh, the Chinese have not, until recently, not spent vast sums on defence. They've now invested very heavily in a navy and in cyber um, weapons. But um, I, w I wouldn't fancy their chances, actually, if they got embroiled in a war on Taiwan. And I think at the very least, they're going to wait several years before pushing the issue to a climax. Great. Well, thank you very much for talking to us today. Yeah. Uh, really appreciate it. And um, best of luck with, with both of your books. Thank you. That's uh, really kind of you. Well, our thanks to, to Vince Cable for, for making time in his busy schedule to, to talk to me. And that was really interesting. Well, I'm glad you were there to do it, Tim. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this March edition and uh, have a nice month. And we'll see you again in April. Thanks, Tim. You have been listening to Talking Books, presented by Susie Wilde and Tim O'Kelly and produced by John Wellsman.
Sushi, king of the allotments. So I've always been keen on gardening, forever. Petersfield Gardening Royalty, growing together on Shine Radio. Give it a go this year, you never know, and we're here on hand if you have any questions. Growing together with Claire Venice and Steve Amos. New every month and always online at shineradio.uk. Music.